The Daily Rios episode 459, Super Blog Team-Up on Immortal. Hey everyone, this is your host, Peter, putting out a podcast today on Wednesday, August 28th, 2019, as an entry into this fall's Super Blog Team-Up that is spearheaded by Charlton Hero over at the Superhero Satellite blog. This is a time where like-minded bloggers and podcasters come together to talk about a singular topic on a given day. The last one that I participated in was about redemption on Thanos, the Samaritan storyline from about 2004, I think. And today we're talking about the theme of immortal. Now this is, uh, as I said, my fourth entry with the Superblog team-up. They've had many more than that. The first two, the first two, I did as website posts, and then, as I said, the last one on redemption was a, a podcast. So I'm, I'm deciding to make this a podcast as well. Now, after you listen to this episode, if you want to jump in and listen to some of the other entries or read some of the blogs. Uh, from all of the other participants, you can do so by checking out the links either on my Twitter, Peter J. Rios, or you can go go to the Superhero Satellite blog, uh, where Chris has a whole list there, and I will include all of the entries in my show notes as well. So the theme of immortal, being immortal, what did that mean? What did that conjure up? I didn't go too deep with this one. Uh, When I heard what the theme was, I kind of went right back to Arion the Immortal, a six-issue miniseries from 1992, featuring the sorcerer Arion, Lord of Atlantis. Now, if you don't know that character from DC Comics, Arion first appeared in Warlord issue number 55 all the way back in uh, at the end of 1981 in a story called Atlantis, and it was a backup tale in the Warlord series, and on the cover it said, Extra Thrilling Mystical Adventure in Prehistoric Atlantis. So it was a way for DC to do a sword and sorcery concept. Now at the time they had Warlord, uh, eventually they had Arik, Son of Thunder. They had the miniseries Camelot 3000 in the early 80s. They would have Amethyst, Princess of Gemworld, even something like Sword of the Atom in the early 80s uh, was, you know, kind of like a, hence in the title, a sword and not so much sorcery, but the other words, other ones were. Um, DC had a lot of genres, you know, they had the sword and sorcery, they had the horror, they had the mystery titles. So this was a new character, Arion. That first story was by Paul Kupperberg, Jan Dorsma, uh, Tatiana Wood was on colors, Todd Klein letters featuring the characters, as I said, of Arion, uh, Lady Chien, who would be his lover along the way, Arion's father, Kalkula, and others. Uh, now the backup tale in Warlord ran all the way up to issue 61, and then Arion graduated into his own series for 35 issues and one special. And that series ran between 1982 and 1985. That entire run, including the special, 
is on the DC Universe app. So if you've never read Arion, uh, there's your chance to do so if you're someone who has the app. Now I'm going to say right up front, Arion, some people I know call it Orion, but that doesn't make sense to me because there is an Orion in the New Gods and it's spelled with an A, A-R-I-O-N. Maybe it's Arion, you know. um, I don't know if I've ever heard, I looked up a bunch of Paul Kupperberg interviews, but I don't think um, I ever got to a point where he said the character's name. So I'm going with my pronunciation, Arion. Uh, he also showed up in DC Comics Presents, issue number 75. Um, he was one of the main characters at the start of Crisis on Infinite Earths. He was one of the great 15, as Adam and I call him, call them over on the Crisis Tapes. He was front and center. He represented DC's prehistoric past, and he was obviously used to show the, you know, many different genres that DC had at that time. From there, he showed up in the 1986 Aquaman miniseries, just in little cameos. He had some appearances in Warlord in the Time Masters maxi-series of the late 80s. He even had a cameo in the Books of Magic miniseries. Then we get to 1992 with the Arion the Immortal miniseries, which is what I'm going to talk about here. From there, he jumped around into a few Justice League comics. Justice League Quarterly, International Task Force, America. He showed up in Wonder Woman, Hawkman, Peter David's Aquaman. And then from 96 to 2006, he was super sporadic. Uh, 2006 uh, in Superman, which was written by Kurt Busiek and Busiek and drawn by Carlos Pacheco at the time, they did bring him back for the Camelot Falls storyline, and then again, he pretty much vanished. And uh, there is a new 52-era version, showed up mostly in Blue Beetle, he was even in the most, um, in the recent Justice League series in a few issues, but he kind of is in limbo again. And uh, I don't know what it would take for a character like that to make uh, some kind of resurgence. He's never had the popularity of someone like Doctor Strange. Um, Maybe it's because he was always told in comics that were set well outside of the DC timeline or the current heroic DC timeline. Which is why when it came time to do another miniseries with him in 1992... Paul Kupperberg, the writer and the co-creator, co-creator of the character, hashed it out with his editor at the time, Jim Owsley, who, if you don't know who that is, that is the name of Mr. Christopher Priest, who is currently writing the Deathstroke series over at DC. Jim Owsley was one of the first, if not the first, African-American editors over at Marvel Comics, and then eventually he came over to DC and he was known, uh, you know, for someone who was, uh, who had attitude, <laughs> as a lot of these letter columns in this miniseries say. So when it came time to hash out, you know, a resurgence for Arion, uh, they di- he didn't want it set in the prehistoric times. He said, no, you know, write about what you know and set him in current times because maybe that will attract readers. And maybe that will give them some kind of in for the character. So a lot of this was explained in the letter column for issue number one of Arion the Immortal. Uh, 
Um, but there's also a link I'm going to put on in the show notes connecting to Paul Kupperberg's website where he has a whole blog post about the proposal for this series and also some character designs. And it's a really great insight to see how these comics um, grow, you know, from initial pitch to first conversations with editors to more conversations with uh, some higher ups at DC at the time, how they had to connect the character um, or maybe not connect the character to anything that was going on in other parts of their magical universe, uh, such as Dr. Fate. And also at this time, Power Girl was wrapped up in the whole Arion mythos. So, you know, they wanted to make sure it didn't conflict with anything that was going on with her over in one of the Justice League books. One of the things I learned from that proposal, for instance, is that this miniseries originally was called Arion Lord of Order and then became Arion Dark World until they settled upon Arion the Immortal, hence why I am including this miniseries in this Super Blog Team-Up theme. Now, issues one through five are on the DC Universe app. They've been putting them out slowly. I guess maybe they are converting them, so I don't know why they don't have issue number six. But um, I have the issues, so I gave them a read, and I am going to talk about them. So the miniseries itself uh, is written by Paul Kupperberg on script, Mr. Ron Wilson on pencils, Jerry Aserno on inks for issues one through three, and then four through six are inked by Mike Gustavich. And I have to say, I think I prefer his inks over Ron Wilson than uh, Jerry's. Um, Not by much, but uh, there was something about it that I liked. Uh, John Costanza on letters, also Clem Robbins, and then Eric Katchelhofer on uh, colors, edited by Jim Owsley or Christopher Priest, all under pretty amazing covers by Randy DeBurke. And he was someone that wasn't around long. He also did covers on Dark Stars. I don't think I've ever read a comic with his interiors, although I saw that he did a pretty hefty run on one of the stories in Action Comics when it was a weekly series in the 90s, early 90s. So uh, I'd be curious to check that out. Now, I was trying to think of some kind of high-concept elevator pitch to describe what this miniseries uh, was like, both at the time when it came out and rereading it here, you know, how many years later, how many decades later. And I kind of narrowed it down to it's as if you were watching Curb Your Enthusiasm mixed with the movie Cocoon by way of Bewitched, for lack of a good (laughs) magical series. Um, It has the attitude and the bite and the very dour, sometimes um, pessimistic slash realistic view of Curb Your Enthusiasm. Arion and his fellow gods and his supporting cast Uh, are not young in this series because it takes place in the present time and they are all either millions of years old or, you know, tens of thousands of years old. So that's where you get the cocoon reference. Um, 
also in the fact that they are older, yet you can tell there's something otherworldly about them. And then Bewitched, because it's about magic in a very real setting, in an everyday life. Um, and Bewitched was so set within that time period, and it feels like this is the same way for the early 90s. And for some of the dialogue, for definitely some of the outfits that they wear, some of the hairstyles, some of the lingo, um, and also because of DC, where DC was at this time, which is really emphasized by Power Girl in her early 90s outfit, uh, that blue, white, and red outfit that wasn't her original costume, but it's like her post-crisis outfit. So, um, as I said, that's kind of a generic elevator pitch. When you read both the letter columns and the proposal, you can tell that as they were hashing out the feel of this book, they knew it wasn't going to be for everybody. And I think there's something to be said about um, at least trying it, trying out what they did, you know, setting him in the present. He he and his uh, supporting cast are in New York. Uh, Arion himself is a card shark, a three-card Monty card shark. Uh, in Washington Square Park, trying to rip people off uh, from their dollars. Uh, he lives in a, in a one-studio room in New York. Um, his longtime ed- enemy known as Kaon, who, wa- who was the god of chaos, now runs a deli on the Lower East Side. Uh, some of the gods of Atlantis, uh, the Weaver and Deidre and Jemim, they are just a bunch of older um, friends of Arion, and they sit on a bench, and they feed the pigeons, and they drink, and, you know, um, they sit there and, and talk about each other, and look around them themselves, and look at what, where the world is, and they read newspapers, and it's just, it's, uh, it's very generic and very geriatric, I guess you could say. Um, apparently Arion has been this way for 57 years, And all of this is because 45,000 years ago, magic had disappeared, which was something that was going on in the Ariane series in the 80s, but I don't know if this is a direct link to that. That means this comic is, in a way, an exploration of what it's like to be an immortal, to to be uh, someone who has long life but has no more magic. It creates a sort of complacency within Arion. He's been inactive for so many years that he can't trouble himself uh, with human affairs. And when things start to happen where magic starts to slowly creep in around New York and around him, again, he feels like he doesn't really want to get involved. And a lot of that is because he's been so separated from the magic for so many uh, millennia. In one of the later issues, they even say, uh, you know, he's been instilled with the complacency of humanity. Or another time, uh, he's described as Arion the Immortal, and now just, instead of being the king of the world, as he was back during the time of Atlantis, he's now just the Lord of Chelsea. One of his supporting cast uh, members is this woman named Amanda Crowley, uh, that name means a lot, right? Crowley. I thought perhaps they would tie her into Alistair Crowley, but um, that didn't happen. 
So anyway, so here's a woman that he's known for many, many, many years since she was five years old. She's now an adult and he has a crush on her. He has a very weird Professor X Jean Grey thing going on with her. And, um, of course, she sees him as just, uh, you know, a grandfather. So part of that whole immortal theme is can he really love a human? Now, by the end, they don't get together, uh, thankfully, because it was a little creepy here and there. And I thought it, I thought the miniseries um, hung on that a little too much um, and didn't get as in-depth as I was hoping. But the notion is there, you know, can an immortal love a human when in their perception of time and, um, you know, the passage of time, a human's life is just a blink of an eye. In fact, one of his friends on the bench says that. So how how could he ever, um, you know, choose to live with a human? Now, part of the whole ordeal with the conflict that eventually happens is this whole notion of, you know, um, Ariane having to choose between being an immortal without magic uh, and just, uh, you know, living among, among humans or accepting magic back again um, and, and either trying to rule them or just separating himself from humanity. So as I said, magic returns and apparently Atlantean magic is supposed to be totally different from any other magic within the DC universe. It's not the, the magic of Dr. Fate. It's not the magic of Zatanna. It's been asleep for a very, very long time. It has started to come back because within the Arion mythos, there's this realm called the Dark Dimension. And that's where magic, Atlantean magic anyway, comes from. And we learn in this miniseries that the Dark Dimension is alive and it's been awake for many millennia. And that's why everybody has been cut off from the magic. It's only when the Dark Dimension is asleep and dreams of Atlantis or dreams of a world like Atlantis, that's when the magic is actually around and when anybody that practices Atlantean magic can sort of, you know, um, harness the magic. So the magic in New York is starting starting to come back because the Dark Dimension wants to go back to sleep. And it wants to put its hold back onto the Earth so that magic can reign free again. But that means, of course, all kinds of craziness is going to happen. So Arion, he has his powers back. All of the gods have their power back. Uh, Arion's brother, Garn Danuth, who was one of his major enemies in the original series, is back, of course. He has his ma magic back. And all Arion wants to do is just ignore everything. Because that, again, the complacency of humanity. That's where he is at this point. Eventually, by the end of the series, he has to... Um, come up with a way to make sure that the Dark Dimension never goes back to sleep. He merges his brother with the Dark Dimension so that it will always be in this kind of like eternal um, restlessness and it'll never fall back to sleep. The magic that has been spread around the world is still there, but it's not in totality. It's not the way it used to be. So even though there's some magic in the world, some Atlantean magic, um, it won't create the havoc that it had created in these issues. 
Arion's brother Garn was hoping that Arion wouldn't interfere, but he knows that eventually he will have to interfere. So that's why there was the big battle between the two of them in the heart of the Dark World. We did get a Power Girl cameo at the end. She had very little to do, but she was around because Arion is her grandfather, at least at this point, post-crisis. And that's a whole other topic that I'd rather not get into right now. Uh, but yes, at one point, Power Girl was wrapped up into the whole Arion mythos. So she made an appearance here. Um, the proposal talked about um, this series being a dramedy about the oldest man on Earth. And it's really there in the first couple issues, like in the first two or three, this whole exploration of Arion being this curmudgeon and wanting to just do what it is he wants to do. And he doesn't want humanity to bother him, and he doesn't want to bother humanity. As the series went on and some of the magic came about and you got to see what the conflict was, uh, I think they they got away from that theme a little bit, even though it was there here and there. And what I was really sort of disappointed upon this reread was getting to the last issue when everything was sort of, you know, fixed <laughs> or it ended, and it all wrapped up in like a page or half a page even. Now, uh, in the next issue, well, in the letter column for the last issue, they did mention that Power Girl and Arion were supposed to have some kind of story within like Justice League Quarterly, but I, I've never read that, so I don't know if there ever really was a follow-up. But I thought the, the wrap-up of the series needed a little bit more. I think we needed, you know, it was, it was too quick. He, he just sort of said, okay, yes, this little bit of magic is back, and I understand my place, and no, I can't love this girl, Amanda, because I'm, you know, millennia older than she is, and that's weird. Um, but hey, here's the ending, and, and we're out. To the point where he even says to Kara, Power Girl, you know, you're you're with the past, and you're from my past, and I don't have time for that right now. <laughs> I got to deal with everything that's going on. So that was a little strange. Um, so it is Arion the Immortal. There are parts of it that kind of, um, uh, kind of get into this idea of what it would be like. Um, it's, it's interesting because, as I said, it is pretty much set in 1992. It feels like a very 1990s comic um, in terms of some of the writing. Uh, you know, it's, I think it's uh, heavily dialogued. Um, the artwork is fine. The, the character designs are fine. There are some confusing things that happen with describing how long ago Atlantis uh, was actually around, how old these characters are. Sometimes they say five millennia. One time I think they said 5,000. Uh, so all of it was a little, you know, there's, there were some strange editorial mistakes, I thought. Um, oddly enough, though, there was a tone within those first two or three issues that I felt uh, could have held up with certain comics today. Um it may not have the craft of something like Matt Fraction's Hawkeye with David Aja, but this notion of like an everyman character just living in a city with a weird cast of characters and weirdness that goes on around him. It even has a dog. <laughs> One of his supporting characters from the 80s uh, series, Mara, is back. 
um, <clears throat> just as a dog. She was a shapeshifter and over the millennia forgot how to become human again. So she's just this little white dog that follows him around and gets roped up in Arion's av- adventures. So, um, as I said, the craft is not there for something like that Hawkeye series, which many people think is like one of the things that started off this new wave of comics about, um, it's more about the civilian identity of a superhero rather than the superhero identity. But I think you can trace that all the way back to Starman and, um, you can trace that even further back to some independent comics as well. So it has that kind of flavor. It's just, um, you know, it just doesn't, hit the mark the way you want it to. But as I said, the first three issues, they had, there's some interesting things going on there. And then it becomes kind of like a generic comic book after that. So does it cover the immortality theme? Yes. It's clearly in the title. It's, it does have some of it in the comic itself. If this is something you find in the back issue bins, I think you'll notice it by the covers. The covers, as I said, are pretty striking. And if you're someone who is an Arion fan and you've never read these issues, then I think you should because I think you'll recognize some of the characters, at least their names, and it's kind of fun to go back. Uh, And it's a nice pit stop along the way um, throughout Arion's DC publishing journey. You know, from here, as I said, he does show up here and there and we get him in that Kurt Busiek story, which I really liked. Um, so, but it's kind of nice to see him in the middle of, um, you know, DC proper or in our quote unquote, um, current continuity. Now, the thing you don't get within the DC universe app is you don't get the letter columns. And I have to freely admit they are pretty fun. Uh, they're very honest. They say they're a little rambling here and they, here and there, but they're, they're right on the money when they're like, this is not going to be for everybody. They put some letters in there that, you know, some people aren't happy with the series and they respond to them. Some of the responses make me laugh. Um, And you get a real sense that this series made them laugh. And I do appreciate that. So DC took a chance on it. And I was certainly someone at the time who read it and enjoyed it for what it was. Uh, Looking back on it, it doesn't hold up quite as well. But uh, I enjoyed the trip back to 1992 with Arion the Immortal for this Super Blog team-up episode. As I said, check the website for links for all of the other entries. Give them a read. Give them a listen if they are a podcast. Check out their blogs. Check out other entries in their blogs or follow them on Twitter. You can follow me, Peter J. Rios. And by all means, leave a comment on the, web- on the website or send me an email, peter at thedailyrios.com. This has been The Daily Rios, episode 459. Talk to you soon. Bye.